now. Hello and welcome to my digital talk on the US election. This series of uh, conversations on the presidential election in the United States is possible thanks to the support of the Austrian-American Partnership Fund, which promotes collaboration and exchange between Austrian and US non-governmental organizations, universities and professional associations. I have a very special guest with me today, uh, Albert Marco. Albert is a political economic consultant who services financial firms, governments, and US congressional members. Albert, welcome. And as you can guess, I have a lot of questions for you on the hottest topic uh, right now, not only in the US politics, but in global affairs. Now, I would like to immediately ask you about your own estimations uh, regarding the potential U.S. presidential outcome. Who do you think is going to win the U.S. presidential election? Well, the presidential election, in my estimation, is probably going to be tipped over to Donald Trump. Um, that is really based on state-by-state uh, uh, state, uh, calculations of voter registration, uh, Trump's approval numbers within the Republican Party, and actually within independence and you know like so the european europeans have to understand something that we don't have a national popular vote we have a state by state vote which which uh adds up to total over 270 electoral college votes and that determines our victor so really there's only about five states in question right now and within those five states the Republican Party has absolutely dominated registrations. They've actually expanded the registration rolls from 2016, which is unheard of. And only a few people have actually noted that. And a lot of these polls, for some reason, just don't either don't understand it or they just overlook it. So and th this is why my, under my estimation that uh, Donald Trump will end up being the victor in 2016, 2020. Mm -hmm. Could you give us some insights as to how exactly uh, this will turn out? Uh, if we look at the current polls, most of them are pointing to Joe Biden. It's a kind of a deja vu moment, right? Because we had this similar situation uh, during the last U.S. presidential uh, presidential uh, presidential campaign. But you were, uh, by the way, one of the few. Uh, analysts who actually predicted correctly the outcome. So right now you are also in the minority, more or less. <laughs> yeah. Uh, is is well, it about the swing states? Which states will be uh, decisive? And uh, maybe to give us some some more details. Well, so like I said, there's only a few states that you really need to look at. That being Florida, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin and Arizona. Now, when it comes to North Carolina and Florida, I don't see a path for Joe Biden to win here. The, the Republicans have outnumbered the Democrats concerning voter registration. So I, I just, those, those two states are beyond, beyond help for uh, Biden right now. When you look at Pennsylvania, that becomes a little bit more interesting because it's got interesting dynamics there. But again, the Republicans cut 160,000 votes away from the Democrats from the last election. 
So you have you have these you have these things popping up in multiple states. But concerning the polling, <laughs> now we have to understand that we have come out of unbelievable lockdowns. It's been an unbelievable situation for the entire world. There is no polling done in the United States aside from phones, right? Mm-hmm. That is statistically one of the highest margins of error you can possibly you can possibly have. If you don't if you don't have a, a face-to-face uh, balance, a counterbalance to what you're doing on the phone and online polls, you have absolutely no idea who's who is who is pressing the button or or if they're even being truthful, because you can sit there and look at somebody and if he's got a Donald Trump hat, but he's telling you he's going to vote for Joe Biden, well, you're going to be a little bit skeptical of that data. And I, I hear a lot of the, you know, in 2016, we heard a lot of the shy Trump voter, and that was absolutely the case. But in 2020, I don't like using the word shy because you can't be shy with a computer program. I mean, you're not talking to anybody, but you do have a big effort uh, for Trump supporters to be spiteful of the polling. I can't tell you how many people that I know personally take take the poll. Whenever they get polled, they actually tell the, the polling numbers, the polling um, outfits, the wrong numbers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what, in your opinion, would be actually major factors or let's put it that way, triggers that might decide the presidential outcome in favor of the one or the other candidate. What is really uh, going on right now in terms of uh, you know decisive final triggers, <laughs> right? Because we've well, seen a lot, and you've mentioned yourself that it's a really uh, unique situation. Yeah. So even within the polling, even even though I I I have faith that the polling is incorrect, there are actually pieces of data that are gems in there that people tend to overlook. Now, the two issues, you know, the economy being for Trump and COVID, the COVID response being for Biden. Now, you, 56% of respondents favor Trump for the economy. And that is the number one issue, even no matter by, by leaps and bounds. So as long as the economy, as long as people have the perception that they're in a better spot than they were four years ago, Donald Trump is gonna run away with this election. Now, the problem is, like you said, second waves are coming along of COVID and, you know, people get a little bit nervous. Now, does that tip the election towards Joe Biden? That's something that, you know, I haven't personally seen in the polls, especially from the respondents claiming like what issue is the most important. I just haven't seen it at the moment. But to, to answer your question, it's the economy for Donald Trump and it's COVID response for, uh, for Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. Uh, I see that there are also relevant questions coming from uh, social media regarding this mm-hmm. session of, uh, of the discussion. For instance, um, there is a question, will the recent census decision affect the stimulus negotiations which are taking place right now and are also, in my sense, very decisive uh, in a way for uh, the presidential outcome? So will they affect actually... Um, the stimulus negotiations and will actually the stimulus negotiations if affect the presidential outcome well <laughs> that's a, that's a quite a, that's quite a good question now the census the census i've been talking about for up to about 2 years now that is the biggest news story that nobody talks about 
it's going to affect the way house seats are drawn up the map of it it's going to affect where federal funding goes to from from here for the next 10 years and it affects the electoral college of what state's going to how, how much a state's electoral college uh tally is versus the other that is significant and uh, you know the fact that the democrats haven't been vocal about it in the news is just an indication of how important this is now does that affect the stimulus you know I, I don't think so at the moment. I think that's a little bit that's 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 a little bit six months down the road before things get really serious about the census and all the legal and all the legal uh, lawsuits that probably the Democrats are going to bring about for it. But um, so the stimulus is the biggest game of chicken I've ever seen with people's with people's money at stake because it's just it's unbelievable. Up to about two weeks ago. About two weeks ago, there was a tentative deal between uh, Pelosi and Mnuchin. But when Donald Trump got coronavirus, you know, Pelosi saw an opportunity there to use it as political leverage in the in the election. That since then has backfired significantly. Since even polling shows that uh, Pelosi has taken more of the blame for uh, the delay in stimulus than uh, Donald Trump has. So now. Mnuchin and Trump, looking at it from their perspective, they have the political advantage over Pelosi for the election, and they're, you know, they're they're going to use it. They're going to maximize the the pressure on her. Mm -hmm. Now let's uh, talk about the consequences of the U.S. election um, for the United States. As you've mentioned, it's a unique situation, not just for the United States, but also for the whole world due to the global um, pandemic. Uh, uh, outbreak. Uh, so obviously the United States is also already on a recovery path, right? Um, there is also a major role uh, that the Federal Reserve is playing, probably the most important right, right now when it comes to the recovery plans. But there is also the case of a further polariz polarization within the society, uh, not only based on uh, political biases uh, or preferences, but uh, also strength, being strengthened uh, by the repercussions uh, of uh, the COVID-19 crisis. Now, how do you think uh, this uh, election outcome will impact the global role of the United States uh, on the one side, but also the internal the, uh, development of the United States on the other? Well, globally, I, I mean, the stakes cannot be higher for the for the world versus the United States right now, because the Europeans and the Chinese absolutely do not want to see Donald Trump uh, reelected for what for for their own uh, self purpose interests. Uh, the Chinese have uh, Xi Jinping has had immense pressure, absolute immense pressure, both uh, internationally and domestically. Because of the because of the Trump tariffs and the pressure that the United that the United States has put on him, if Trump is reelected, I do not see him lasting two or three years in power. Now, when it comes to the Europeans, they know that a Democratic president is much more lenient economically and geopolitically than Donald Trump has been. They need the, they need Joe Biden to win desperately because if they don't because if Trump wins, the U.S. dollar most likely goes right back up to 98 or even over 100 in the DXY. And that's a big problem for the Europeans. It puts a lot of strain on the system. They're gonna have to, they're gonna have to request more money from the US Fed to be able to bail out their own companies and their own economies. 
Mm -hmm. Let's unpack this a little bit because you've uh, addressed many, many issues uh, simultaneously. Um, one of which is, of course, um, the major expectation on this side of the Atlantic when it comes to uh, the potential outcome. And there is uh, no secret uh, that uh, our political decision makers, uh, our elites um, and stakeholders on the old continent are, of course, hoping for uh, Biden's win because this gives certain, a certain expectation as to the direction of the transatlantic uh, relationship. Now, on the other side, of course, uh, what, what you mentioned is, uh, you know, the possibility of Trump's re-election. So whether we like it or not, we should actually face a reality in which Trump might be, um, you know, might be shaping the relationship of the transatlantic community and specifically the relations with certain European countries during a second mandate. So I would like to unpack this a little bit. How do you see the direction of the transatlantic community under uh, Trump's second mandate? What troubles me most is uh, the expectation that the relations between Germany and United States under Trump's second mandate would further deteriorate. You mentioned some economic indicators. Uh, such as strengthening the US dollar, which would, of course, affect negatively the uh, euro currency. And right now, we are in the middle of a institutional consolidation being initiated by the European institutions. So there is a lot of complexity going on uh, on that side uh, of the Atlantic as regards the you know, potential outcome. How do you see this? How do you assess these uh, developments and this kind of complexity? Well well it's 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 again it's complex but you know let's just take let's just eliminate the rest of the european union right now and just focus on uh, france and germany because realistically that's the that's the lead that's the leaders of the of the, the european union um the germans are desperate you know they've miscalculated significantly since 2008 of how to how to how to address the united states uh relations started to sour believe it or not in 2008 with barack obama and ever since then, the Germans have shifted towards the, the, the Russians and even the Chinese because they, the Germans need the Chinese market for their, for their exports. Unfortunately, the Chinese are going to be Chinese and they're just all they've been doing is copying German technology and sending it out to the emerging markets, cutting off the German exports in that area. I, you know, for, for, my, for, my, for my analysis, there needs to be a come to Jesus moment for the Germans at this at this point because they cannot rely on the French. They cannot rely on the French to have some kind of unified front against Donald Trump because Macron is is going to be French and he's going to absolutely start cutting deals with Donald Trump right after a re-election. And if Donald Trump is re-elected, he's mm -hmm. he's going to go for French interests. He's going to put the Germans on the side. And then what do the Germans do at this point? I mean, they're facing. They're facing 30 some percent of their internal manufacturing sector are zombie companies using the short work program to even stay alive. That's that's not how you that's not how you do business. You need you need to start addressing uh, the you need to start addressing the relationship with the United States and start working a little bit closer with the United States because at the end of the day, the United States is the biggest economy in the world. 
and most of your pro a lot of your luxury products come through the US market. Do you think that based on this geoeconomic analysis that you've just made, uh, there will be a kind of a divide and rule approach uh, uh, by the United States uh, as regards to the European uh, allies and partners? So uh, basically picking uh, what we've observed with the first mandate, namely this bilateral track of relations, uh, where Trump picked those loyal and trustworthy partners and uh, deepened the relations with them uh, in various fields. But then again, he antagonized other European powers based on conflictual geoeconomic interests, like you've outlined in the case with Germany. That's that's exactly how that's exactly how politics works, and this is like this is it's an old school method of dealing with uh, political economics. Is you work with your interests first. I mean, what is the European Union? It's a trade block, but I mean, realistically, German industrial sector doesn't really care about the French industrial sector, and those people are voting in their leaders, so they have so they have their own interests in in mind so of course the united states is going to deal with french in a different manner than they are with the germans they're not going to cut one unified deal with the european union it just doesn't it doesn't work that way and that's one of the reasons that actually the 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 uk failed initially to get brexit done is because they they kept on they kept on dealing with the whole of the european union rather than going to the capitals individually and addressing the situation there well, of course, most of the European uh, member states are a small in their size or scale of influence, which is why uh, the trade bloc, uh, which is uh, actually not just common market, meanwhile, it's a economic and trade uh, bloc uh, with significant geoeconomic influence in the global affairs. Uh, is given that kind of competences and power to, uh, you know, to uh, lead this kind of negotiations. Uh, th this is one of probably the most important uh, geoeconomic leverages that the European Union has as an actor, aside from the European powers. On the other side, of course, issues such as Brexit um, or future relations between uh, United States and uh, European Union and NATO and other organizations under Trump second mandate will be certainly uh, negatively affected. Now, on the other side, if we take uh, Biden, Biden's mandate, right? Mm -hmm. I think that the institutional approach will be quite different if we look back at what Obama did, namely initiating Trans-Pacific uh, partnership with key Asian countries, trying to engage them geoeconomically by isolating China, right building regional trade block with them and the very same approach uh, was initiated uh, here in europe with the ttip which was actually the largest trade block in the world if it actually had uh, you know taken place so how do you think this do you think that the joe biden would go back to this kind of obama obama's approach in uh, terms of uh, engaging the european partners and allies well i you know in terms of engaging i think you know joe biden and the the, the former obama uh, administrators that will be in his cabinet if he gets elected are going to have a very lazy approach to everything you know just sit back and let the leave from behind that doesn't really work. Lead from behind. What does lead from behind mean? I mean, even even the Chinese don't respect the European Union 
as an entire trade block, they go to individual countries and cut deals for the BRI. So, I mean, you know, we can talk about trade blocks and how the smaller countries need the European Union, but I mean, just look at China, what they've done to the European Union. They've, they've weaved in and out to whatever they think is most advantageous to them. I you know back to back to Biden. I mean, did they try to isolate China? No, not really. They all they did was provide vacuums that China was allowed to go into. I mean, look at the South China Sea's islands that have been militarized. The United States saw that for up to two years, you know, on satellite images with no response. You know, that's not isolation. That's just you know, that's just avoidance. You know, they don't want they didn't want to get into the geopolitical problem issues because they have an ideology that you let the world do what they need to do rather than the United States leading it. I do not I do not sign up to that uh, that ideology. I think that the super superpower needs to lead the world. Mm -hmm. So uh, speaking of uh, the speaking of China, you've mentioned China several times and obviously the major the major rival or um, you know competitor to United States will be uh, Beijing. Uh, now depending on the election outcome, do you think that the approach uh, the US approach to China will change or will further be expanded or what exactly it would look like in your view? Oh, there's significant differences between Trump and Biden in, in terms of dealing with China. Uh, the Trump administration will keep up the pressure on China and look for decoupling and changing the manufacturing, bringing it back to the Anglosphere or Eastern Europe, rather than Biden likely just cutting a deal and trying to lower the tensions. But, you know, the, the problem with lowering the tensions with the Chinese is that they take advantage of it, like any, any country would, realistically. Any country would take advantage of a superpower stepping back to fill in those gaps. Mm -hmm. Let's elaborate a little bit more on that. Um, obviously, the approach by both candidates is uh, quite different. Uh, on the one side, as you've outlined, it's more about engaging a competitor, uh, providing platforms, uh, preferably multilateral um, platforms within organizations. Uh, for a dialogue and negotiations, uh, as opposed to the other candidates' approach, which, which is more controversial, more conflictual one. Why? Because uh, on the one side, uh, Trump uh, is engaging uh, obviously direct uh, competitors or uh, com basically countries that uh, are neighbors to China and are very cautious about the rise of China in Asia, uh, such as the case with Japan, such as the case with South Korea. Now, you've mentioned also there is a sort of a reconfiguration of supply chains taking place, uh, particularly in Asia. We are observing already the processes uh, due to the COVID-19 outbreak, which means that uh, countries such as uh, Australia, uh, but also India are coming together and are trying to make sense of all these processes, but also trying to engage in a new kind of uh, uh, partnerships, right? Where they discuss not just trade and economic issues, but they discuss the security, they discuss defense, they discuss also potential uh, future cooperations in very sensitive areas such as cyber, hybrid, uh, space exploration, and so on and so forth. How do you think that um, 
since these two approaches are quite quite different um how do you think that the or what do you think would be really uh an adequate uh u.s role following the u.s uh the u.s uh elections a presidential election because obviously an isolationism i mean and we we know over the history that the uh, united states have has always had this kind of preference for isolating uh, itself from the global affairs from time to time uh, and then we also observed throughout the history what kind of uh, implications this had for the international relations right mm -hmm. which of course immediately led to the to the necessity for them to step in to participate this was the case with the second world war for instance and mm -hmm. uh, Obviously, a completely isolated United States is uh, is 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 no go. But then again, no. the expectation that uh, it's going to be back to normal um, <laughs> pre-Trump uh, United States, being proactive in all multilateral institutions, uh, shaping the processes within these international organizations. And basically, the institutional leverage from the seven, from the last seventy-five years. This is also not going to be the case. It's going to be a kind no. of a mixture. So, what is your view on that? Well, it's exactly right. It should be a mixture, and it, it, it needs to be a mixture. And the United States needs to lead a, comp a, a competitive, a competitive group or a trade deal to China's BRI. That's the biggest problem. Is China's Belt and Road Initiative. Is the, is the biggest problem that the United States and the Europeans are facing. The United States needs to lead an Anglosphere-centric reconfiguration of supply chains and trade deals based around that. The Europeans need to be partners within that sphere because European, the Europeans have such a great opportunity based on, based on their overseas net, historical overseas networks in the Caribbean, in Africa, in, in the Middle East, that they can easily, easily fill in those gaps with the United States assistance to cut out, cut the Chinese out of those markets and out of those services and and perpetuate the industry that, that, that the, the Europeans thrive on. I mean, the United States, you know, our manufacturing industry, I know, I know Trump is going to say it's all coming back. It's all coming back. But that takes that takes years for, for manufacturing to come back. And realistically, the cost of living in the United States is way higher. The the products that will be produced here will be way higher. So we need partners like India. We need partners like uh, the Europeans and the Australians to step in and fit into fit into that Anglospheric pro-US dollar role. Mm -hmm. So your expectation is to sum it up that there will be uh, definitely a kind of reconfiguration based on supply chains, uh, but also based mm -hmm. on shared values, shared uh, geoeconomic and geopolitical interests, that there is still actually, that there are still uh, partners and allies in Europe to be found. What I immediately think of, of course, is also the active role of the United States, uh, for instance, uh, when it comes to connectivity and, um, uh, you know, BRI opposed projects such as the three the three C's initiative, which actually aims to uh, build connectivity between the north and the south in Europe. So basically, connecting Arc the Arctic, the Nordic countries, the Baltics, 
Um, and then moving through the Western Balkans and Central European uh, countries, which are uh, have always been, at least for the last 30, more than 30 years, uh, at the focus of US uh, security policy, politics. Uh, so basically moving to uh, the south, to the Mediterranean Sea, and then connecting this with uh, North African countries, which also will witness uh, kind of uh, rise, at least in terms of connectivity, transport, trade, but also, unfortunately, as we've observed during the last months, um, rise of uh, military tensions and uh, conflicts. Yeah, but that's that's something that people don't really uh, put together is that the the defense alliances and the way trade works, right? To 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 change supply chains, to protect supply chains, you need military alliances. The only military alliances in the world right now is the one that the United States defense umbrella, right? And the Europeans, if they want to play this game, they have to they have to step up, and they either have to have like you had been saying before a uh, hybrid private military national military for the european union to be able to fit into this into the into, into the united states defensive umbrella they they have to do this otherwise it's just not going to work mm -hmm. yes we are uh, in fact in the middle of a process of uh, re rethinking um how we should actually engage more uh, in the field of security and defense policy um, European member states are still not providing enough, enough actually, or committing themselves enough, let's put it that way, for even to their own uh, battle groups that we have. And we, uh, there is no secret that we are also not really too active when it comes to our US missions and US operations, which have a very limited scope. And uh, in a sense, uh, there is right now a debate, a strategic debate taking place when it comes mm -hmm. to the future role of the European pillar uh, within NATO. So, um, so long the, the German leadership, the new German leadership is not being elected, that means that we don't know until, we will not know until 2021, who is going to be the next chancellor in Germany, who is going to be in charge. Uh, basically, this is uh, for us here in Europe, uh, still the engine of the European integration, if you like, and everything that has mm -hmm. to do with future projects has to go through Germany one way or another. And of course, then Macron will also face elections, so which means that he then will follow uh, the same path where we he, he will have to make sure that uh, he has enough uh, political support uh, at home and with the current uh, post-COVID-19 or still COVID-19 situation, this is of course not the case. Um, so then again, this French-German axis, so to say, uh, has to decide what kind of relations they want to build with the UK. Uh, and as you mentioned, there is of course the risk that there will be another bilateral track, right? German-UK, German-French, which also will be decisive for future projects in the field of defense, which is why I made this proposal that we probably should think of a more unorthodox way how to engage militarily, because we are meanwhile surrounded by quite assertive regional actors that mm -hmm. actually see hard power as means to, uh, you know, to um, politically achieve what they have as goals, as geopolitical goals, 
Uh, and countries such as Turkey and uh, Russia are definitely not going to uh, accept that uh, this vacuum that they have filled would be, uh, you know, would be given uh, for free to other actors that want to be, uh, you know, part of uh, of the Turkish space. Yeah. Yeah, they do need to, they do need to step up, but the problem becomes money. You know, who's going to be paying for an expansion of military in the European Union? And specifically, let's just take Germany because that's that's the biggest player. Who's going to who's going to fund this? It would take it would take the Germans ten trillion dollars to be able to come up to the level to an acceptable level to where the U.S. is. It's that's just there's no money in there right now. So for them. And all the European Union members is they have to fill in specific roles with, with the United States. It's you know it's it's so it's so mind-numbingly difficult right now to sit there and even even think about the Europeans even having a European army at the moment just because the financial constraints of it is just so daunting right now. You know where, where do they borrow the money from the United States? Well, then that causes other problems you're gonna to have to cut down social programs within those countries that's just not acceptable politically in any country in europe right now so you know again where where you know where does the money come from from all this mm -hmm. well it's uh, definitely the case that the defense sector will probably will be probably one of the victims of the COVID 19 crisis as you mentioned uh, all the whole focus will be put on uh, socio-economic programs and uh, a speedy recovery of, uh, of Europe. The same applies to the United States, of course. And uh, in that matter, we will have to wait till this uh, important election, not just in the United States, but then, like I mentioned, uh, in uh, Germany, and followed then a year later by France, uh, take place, because this will be very decisive for the direction of the of the developments now i'm seeing that there are a lot of questions that are very much related to the u.s presidential um election uh and the very concrete questions i would like to ask you because of uh, sure. our listeners and watchers and then we can still move uh, to um you know to the global affairs uh analysis now what are your thoughts on the growing debate on section 230 and the impact on big tech after the elections oh the, <laughs> um i you know it's gonna really uh, it's that's section 230 specifically is from what i believe the national defense uh, section where they where donald trump has unilaterally used that for uh trade implications that's <laughs> that's such an egregious abuse of powers and i don't i don't expect that to continue on after the election i think that congress will end up reining that back a little bit because you know it's just it's not even legal <laughs> in, in most in most instances the way that they're applying it is not even really legal um the second part of the question was remind me again well the impact oh, the big on tech, big, tech. Tech. big what is your what is your view on what is going on right now with also with uh, with the case of uh, you know increasing big tech influence uh, not just in the United States, but that's becoming a serious but, issue in Europe as well. Yeah, but the problem the problem is the big tech are donors to the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party is going to hold the, the U.S. Uh, the U.S. House. So any any bills coming out of the U.S. House is pretty much never going to pass 
because that's just the way the economics and, and politics works in that region. Um, I, I, you know, perhaps we see a few more slap on the wrists, you know, fines or legislate a little couple more hoop, you know, legis pieces of legislation coming out to sit there and try to trip up the big tech firms, but they'll get around it. It's not, it's, I don't really see it really influ uh, influencing big tech going forward too much. Mm -hmm. Do you think that uh, big uh, tech will increasingly have a role, not just in the US presidential elections, but uh, also in the way how the United States uh, is conducting its uh, global role after the elections? Do you think that this of course. share of... Of mm -hmm. course, no, I mean, big tech is big tech is only getting bigger. We're in a digitally connected world. On top of that, Google and Microsoft are, you know, important components to the United States defense sector. I mean, they they're always in on the loop for cyber attacks or, you know, global affairs concerning the NSA and the CIA. They all they all talk to one another. So, you know, d going forward, absolutely. They're going to be a big and vital and important role. Mm -hmm. There are more very concrete questions coming from the audience. Uh, um, now, a question uh, on Trump and then a question on Pelosi. Now, will an electoral college win for Trump and a popular vote for Biden strengthen calls for um, electoral college reform? What's your no, view? Absolutely not. For, that, for an electoral college reform, three-fourths of states would have to get together and decide to kill it. The problem is no state, except for maybe California and New York, is willing to do that because it would take their powers away. That's mm -hmm. the simple answer, right direct to the point. It's just not going to happen. Okay. Uh, you've also covered extensively the stimulus package negotiations. Now, there mm -hmm. is a question for you. Will Pelosi's stance on the stimulus package damage her party and her candidate, or will it be actually a bonus for Joe Biden? I think I wholeheartedly think that it's going to damage Pelosi and the Democratic Party. Um, a couple of weeks ago, they had an agreement in, in kind to talk about, but with COVID, you know, Nancy Pelosi saw a political advantage and she decided to use it. The problem is that the Democrats have actually more races and toss-ups toss -ups areas than the Republicans do. Uh, initially, I thought that they'd probably lose about eight to 10 seats. Uh, specifically the ones in the counties where Trump had taken in 2016. But the more that this carries on and Pelosi takes blame, the more House seats she's going to lose. Do they lose a House majority? Probably not. But they will probably lose anywhere between 15 and 20 seats. Now, mm -hmm. her speakership is over after this. There is, there is no way that she can keep the speakership position after the miscalculations that she's, she's given in the last two weeks with the concerning the stimulus package. Mm -hmm. Do you think actually that the stimulus package is still possible prior to the election or will it's, it be left for afterwards? It's possible. It's possible either in full or in portions. Next week, the U.S. Senate is going to be voting on PPP and unemployment benefits. So that's going to pass and that's going to add increasing pressure on Pelosi to act, either do something or absorb the absorb the losses that they're going to take in the house um i think at the end of the day they'll come to some sort of agreement i just don't think it's it's beneficial for any party involved right now for it to just carry on at this point the problem is mnuchin and trump see this as an advantage so they're going to sit there and put maximum pressure on pelosi
Mm -hmm. Given your assessment that uh, Trump will win, uh, who do you think will be the new faces in the Trump second administration? And also, who do you think would keep actually their places? Uh, well, are there Pompeo... any people we should be looking for, or are there any signals that there will be certain people as you know part of the new team? I, I don't think so. I think I think after, after if Trump wins his re-election, I think it'll be the status quo for at least six months to a year, and then new new faces will pop up. I mean, I don't want to say new, but because Nikki Haley's not new, she's been there before, but she'll probably have a more active role in the administration going forward. Speaking of of Nikki Haley, do you think that it would have been actually a better uh, vice president candidate as uh, you know as a parallel to Kamala Harris as a vice president candidate to Biden, or do you think that uh, you know keeping Pence was the right formula for Trump, or is this actually not de not decisive at all in Trump's I case? I personally. I personally would have put Nikki Haley in there, but I would have done it a little bit earlier. I would have done it last year rather than this year and then shifted Pence mm -hmm. over to Secretary of State. That's what I would have done. Um, you know, these guys, you know, th these campaigns, they run their own election models and they know their demographics well. Um, you know, it's hard to it's hard to sit there and bet against Trump because he took down Hillary Clinton, which had a monster of a political machine. So as many people want to criticize him for being you know, dumb or whatever, whatever verbs they want to use against them. He won a presidential election pretty handedly. And from what it looks like in my, in my point of view, he's going to win it again. Mm -hmm. um, how about the future of European security after the Trump re-election? I think we have addressed this uh, question quite, uh, quite extensively, but would you like to, uh, you know, um, add something particularly what troubles me most is, uh, the potential crisis within NATO, because we have one very strong block of European NATO members that are quite loyal to US security interests, but that also see the United States as this guarantor of their security and not particularly European institutions. But then again, on the other side, there is also this uh, these efforts uh, on the side of, uh, of uh, other European member states uh, to emancipate from the United States in the field of security and defense to strengthen security and defense the European way, right? So um, sure, that's understandable. That's under that's understandable, Valina. But you know, these things work incrementally. They don't you can't you cannot just say, let's cut the United States out and do our own thing because it's just there's no money and there's no time involved for that. Uh, for European security, they really need to look at the NORDEFCO model that the Norwegians, the UK, and the United States lead. And they need to apply that to the southern tier with Spain, Italy, and Greece, and France leading that, leading that charge down in the southern tier. I mean, that, 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 that would solve a lot of problems concerning Turkey, Libya, uh, safeguarding Morocco, because Morocco is, you know, even your uh, members of your institute have... Uh, written about extensively morocco is one of those one of those countries that nobody's talking about but everybody should be looking at yes i will be having a conversation a digital conversation with uh, michael tanhum on uh, on these particular issues mm -hmm. thank you for pointing this out uh, um, 
there is another question related to Germany. Obviously, uh, Germany will be uh, at least, like I said, for this side of the Atlantic, really decisive for the future of the transatlantic relations, but also for, for the future relations with the United States. So here is a question, will Germany not instead have a come to Jesus moment by increasing military spending instead of reapproaching the United States after the Trump election. What do you think about that? Well, those two go hand in hand because if they're gonna if they're gonna if they're gonna sit there and increase their military spending, they need to sit there and do it in a in a manner where it's most effective. That would be missions within Africa so they can sit there so they can push out their products and services to that to that emerging market. But to do that, you need to piggyback off a bigger power France, France is not that big compared to the United States, but they have to sit there and deal with the United States. So it would be in Germany's best interest to reapproach the United States, work on their military incrementally. I'm not talking about becoming a war, you know, a, having a war chest and militarizing the entire German, you know, the German people. Just incremental steps, you know, forward would be most beneficial for the Germans. Mm-hmm. I understand. Now there is a question about a country that we haven't addressed yet in this conversation. And as you might guess, uh, that is uh, Russia. Uh, the question goes, does anything change in the relations between Russia and the United States? Um, I would like to also stress uh, the fact that we are currently working together with you and other colleagues on the potential coordination, systemic coordination between Russia and China as opposed to the United States. And uh, we've been in observing an increasing activity uh, in certain fields, for instance, mm -hmm. in international organizations, in order to disrupt the US influence, in order to actually uh, count, build counterweight to U.S. dominance in particular geographic areas. Now, how do you how do you see actually the future relations between Russia and the United States following the you election? Know, I, don't, I, I don't I don't see them changing regardless of which which candidate goes forward. I mean, the the the, the Russians have you know they find their their great niche in select areas of the world of filling in those gaps and influencing those areas. I mean, their main game is natural resources and oil, and that's what they do really well. They, 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 they send out Wagner and they project their power in certain areas and they do well in that, in that, in that scope. Uh, the, the Chinese fit into that model some places, conflict with that model in other places, specifically Africa. So do I see the change? I, I see no change in either, neither, neither candidate right now. The, the Russians mm -hmm. are gonna just do what they do normally United States is going to be adversaries to a certain degree, and that's just going to keep going forward until there's until there's a moment where the Chinese and the Russians have such distrust that they're that the Russians are going to have to turn back towards the Euro, the Europeans rather than the Chinese. Well, in fact, there is this realization already on uh, mm -hmm. uh, here in Europe. For instance, uh, coming from uh, Macron. Macron's team and so basically France has changed its stance on Russia due to mm -hmm. the realization that the rise of uh, 
China needs to be tackled and that the possibility of uh, the deterioration of the relations with the United States is there. So um, this kind of rapprochement is currently taking place and is back backfiring in certain parts of uh, Europe, such as the Baltics, where Macron mm -hmm. uh, made a visit and tried to convince uh, the Baltic partners how good it would be for them actually to, you know, to normalize relations uh, with uh, Russia. Uh, but uh, the narrative is quite similar, namely that it's not just solely about the Europe-Russia relations, it's more about the future Europe-China relations and that Russia should be that kind of uh, disruptive power that none of the competitors wants to see in uh, the other bloc, basically, in the rivals bloc. Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, the French, the French have a leading role in this, in this, you know, the, the Russians and the China, the Russians and the French have, well, they eye each other up in West Africa as needing, not so needing each other, but at least being friendly neighbors in, in West Africa. And they can see that in the future that they could work together, you know, for in a trade block, you know, specifically in West West Africa. And, you know, Macron is doing the right thing. He's approaching Russia and trying to bring them back into the fold. The Baltics are going to be obviously, for historical reasons, really apprehensive of dealing with the with the Russians. But you know, that that's really now on Putin's uh Putin's plate. He could simply come back and be a little bit more conciliatory and you know, I don't want to say work with the Baltics, but at least uh, understand their feelings towards the apprehension of the of the Russians, and go forward from there. I mean, there's there, there's trade has to flow, right? And that's going to go through the Baltics. That's going to go through the, the the North Sea. That's going to go through Austria. Actually, Austria is one of the countries that I always uh, eye up that nobody really looks at, but is pretty much center of the action at the moment. So. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, of course, a um, main protagonist is also Poland, uh, so there are also other Central European countries that are quite opposed to this uh, kind of normalization approach. But then again, uh, will we not face another uh, major obstacle to this kind of effort in case of a second mandate of Trump? Because we know that Trump actually tried to normalize relations with Russia during his first mandate. Uh, based on the fact that he saw the, uh, China as the greatest competitor and as the greatest potential systemic rival and basically wanted to engage the Russians uh, in some ways, which of course was uh, seen politically as a signal that uh, Trump is compromised by the Russians. I mean... Um, and that's just silly. I mean, to say that Trump is compromised by the Russians is, is a silly thing. But... But, you know, Trump on one hand wants to normalize relations, but you have to use a stick and carrot approach, right? You have to give them a carrot if they want, if you want to lead them, but you also have to hit them with a stick when, when it's necessary. And nothing that the Trump administration has really done, except for pieces of uh, Syria, has actually pressured the Russians, neither in Africa nor in South America. And you need to do that to be able to bring the Russians to the table. Otherwise, what, what, what's, what reason do they have to play ball when there's no repercussions there's no there's no consequences for them acting up across the world mm -hmm. in fact uh, they actually managed to expand their positions uh, in various yeah. uh, conflicts and in various uh, geographic areas from libya uh, and uh, eastern mediterranean sea middle east 
uh, Eastern yeah. Europe. Now we see also with the conflict in Nagorno-Karabakh that actually they they were the main protagonist for the negotiations. I mean, these negotiations on the first ceasefire between Armenia and Azerbaijan actually was possible due to the intervention of Moscow. And it lasted, I think, 11 hours till they actually came up with the ceasefire agreement. Um, speaking of Russia, we have another regional, uh, very, meanwhile, very assertive uh, actor, which is Turkey, which on the other side is very important geopolitical actor for the United States. What do you expect uh, in terms of uh, the US-Turkey relations? Uh, following the the outcome, do you think that the relations well, will deteriorate or will further get normalized? They couldn't have gotten worse. <laughs> they couldn't have gotten worse, Melina. I mean, uh, when, during the Obama administration, because they left vacuums in the Middle East, Turkey needed to find partners. They turned towards Moscow and they turned towards Iran. Um, they've worked in coordination with each other into Africa multiple areas in Africa, in the Horn of Africa, Libya, West Africa, using Turkey's uh, uh, Ottoman communities for centuries. The problem now is Turkey and Russia have some, somewhat broken apart and uh, they don't see eye to eye in certain interests, specifically in Libya. And that, that boiled over to what you see in the conflict of uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan. And mm -hmm. that's just, I mean, that's been a known proxy proxy problem between those two for years. And actually, I believe two years ago, I said, as the Turkish and Russian relationship sours, these proxy conflicts will ramp up just because it's easy for them. It costs no money for them. And it's easy for them to project power and cause trouble for one another. Mm -hmm. But going it's forward, a... I think that the Turks, I think the Turks will actually, the United States and Turkey will have to come to some sort of, uh, you know, friendly agreement to stabilize the Turkish economy and use and be able to use the air bases uh, for future use in the Middle East again. Mm -hmm. um, there are so many questions, Albert. I will try to really uh, <laughs> uh, ask all of them. And there are new questions coming. Now, there is a question on India. Um, do you think that the narrative will change or will get uh, or will get better chances uh, under a Republican? A president, or will a democratic president actually uh, contribute to better relations with India? What will be the case with India? That's you know, India is one of those. India is a very, very important component of going forward uh, geopolitically and geoeconomically. Um, so, under Trump, I believe would would be the best scenario for the Indians. They're you know, the Trump administration has given the Indians carte blanche to do whatever they need to do in the in the region they've supported them financially they've they've uh helped them out with the chinese they haven't really stepped on russia's toes um in that region because india for a long time has used brushed as a counterbalance to the chinese and the united states understands that and they haven't really you know damaged that 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 relationship um under the under the biden under a biden campaign I, you know, I don't know because you know there was such animosity between the Obama administration and uh, India that I, it's it's a really an unknown unknown factor of what would happen with the Indians. I don't think it would be very positive because of uh, because the reapproachment that the Biden administration would want with the Chinese. Mm -hmm. uh, once again, a question on China. 
do you see China's GDP matching and surpassing the American GDP? And if yes, how will this affect uh, its geopolitical position vis-a-vis -vis the United States? No, I don't ever, I don't see it uh, matching or even surpassing it simply for the fact that their debt to GDP is astronomical. I mean, they can, what, whatever they put on paper for their GDP, you're, you're just divided by 10 because that's what, what that's what the true GDP is. And, you know, you know, I, I get this a lot and I get, I know, I understand the narrative of, you know, China is going to surpass the United States, but we have to understand that China relies on the U.S. dollar to even have their have their economy function. You know, they use U.S. dollars under under the covers to expand the renminbi, not only to their domestic uh, domestic uh, population, but also to their Belt and Road Initiative. So do I, So the answer would be no, <laughs> not in the, not in the near term. You know, it it would take it would take a lot of U.S. fall a U.S. fall from grace and a rise from China, not just economically but also geopolitically and they just don't have the military they don't have the the global logistics to even play that game right now mm -hmm. but you don't exclude the scenario in the future uh in which oh, no. china okay in would future, be actually yeah. go ahead finish yes where a uh, future scenario in which china would be actually um capable of uh, facing um, united states and their partners and allies uh, well, in terms of um, encompassing that, competition like systemic competition that's key what you just said is not just not just the united states but its allies now even if the united states have have fallen in the next 50 to 100 years militarily we still have allies of Australia, Japan, the UK, India, and multiple multiple other countries. And so, theorizing it, even if the United States fell a block, that still the alliance in its whole would be much stronger than the Chinese. I mean, one one frigate of uh, Japanese F-35Bs could wipe out pretty much. <laughs> half of the militarized fishing fleet in the Sea of Japan from the Chinese. So, I mean, we have to, th we have to understand that, you know, to, to combat the United States is not a simple thing. The United States has such a big lead technologically, militarily, and economically that, it, that we're looking at another century of U.S. dominance. So let me let me sum this up because it's an important segment of the conversation it is more this systemic competition is not so much about offensive confrontation right uh yeah. involving military power so hard power but it's more about a defensive like competition encompassing various fields not just trade and not just diplomatic uh, measures, mm -hmm. but also uh, influencing international and regional organizations, uh, building up uh, solid um, partnerships or allies or probably dependencies. You know, China is also trying to involve uh, other state uh, actors and institutions in it. So it's a, it's about uh, you know it's about the comprehensive of more like defensive like uh, competition right yeah it's 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 all it's all it's all it's all connected you you understand this as a complexity person it's all connected 
if you have the United States, the United States is the only superpower right now that can go globally and work globally and adjust, adjust trade, um, adjust trade deals, change governments if they have to. And the Chinese just can't, they can, they can only work within their own little, within their region right there on their borders. And even, even on their borders, you know, what can they really project power? I mean, I think one of the countries, one of the countries in Africa, I think it was called, I forgot what it's called. I don't know if it was Sudan or Somaliland or Swaziland, one of the African countries, the prime minister told the, the ambassador to China to go, to go to hell. And what are you going to do about it? You're going to bring your Chinese military all the way to Africa? No, because you have no, you have no power. And this is the reason why I, I, I dismiss when people say that the Chinese are going to overtake the United States because you need to do this not just specifically on a defensive measure, but an offensive measure going forward. Mm -hmm. There is a question, by the way, on Taiwan. Uh, what do you think? Will China try to get kinetic uh, with China or is it just a constant bluff? Uh, and will Trump actually recognize Taiwan as an independent state during a second mandate as a potential, I you know, a uh, conflict that is now emerging, we see increasing Chinese activities in the region and also towards Taiwan following uh, the um, events in Hong Kong. So what is your take? There, I mean, there, there's, there's no comparison between Hong Kong and Taiwan. Taiwan has a, a professional functioning military with US equipment. For, for the Chinese to be adventurous and try to take Taiwan, the risk versus reward calculations just isn't there, Valina. So you have to understand that the Chinese have this perception of power. You know, they're the big, they're the big, the big dog in the region, and that's 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 what they want to portray. For them to in for them to attack Taiwan kinetically, and perhaps they'll win, right? But it would be severe losses, and that would really give the Chinese a black eye. And it would expose it would expose weaknesses. So on that basis, I do not think that the Chinese are even going to attempt to take Taiwan. On top of that, a lot of the elite families in China that support Xi and some that don't support Xi have money wrapped up in Taiwan, in factories and industries there. So you can't. Re I mean, for, the, for for them to attack Taiwan and cut off those people's wealth is <laughs> it's not a really it's not a really uh, functional solution for them. Mm hmm. And then and, there is and, one and on, yeah. Oh yeah, about about uh, uh, Trump uh, uh, for Taiwan independence. I don't think that's a red line that I don't think the United States is going to cross anytime soon. But do you expect that the tensions will rise in terms of of Chinese actions and uh, pressure? Um, so basically, the whole portfolio, so to say what is actually yeah yeah of course i mean i mean the Ch the chinese are notorious for you know puffing their chest up and causing tensions and trying to solve you know trying to solve those tensions a little later i mean they did that with the indians you know they started a skirmish with the indians over the himalayan watershed so and i expect them to continue on with taiwan until the situation uh settles down economically for them mm-hmm Okay, and that's also my expectation, by the way. But like you said, I don't expect a direct military confrontation because it's the costs are too high and the incentives too low. I mean, you have just two 
big risks in such kind of uh, you know military yeah, involvement. There's risk, yeah, there's 